Hi, this is Tony Ruggiero, the Dew Sweeper. You're listening to the Tour Coach Podcast, giving you insights into golf instruction at the highest level from on the PGA Tour to our learning center at Frederica Golf Club. So I'm sitting in here on a cold Monday with a teaching legend, one of the greats of all time, someone I've had the pleasure to hang out with a couple times and share some videos and pick his brain, Mr. Chuck Cook. Chuck, how you doing, bud? I'm doing great, Tony. Great to be with you. Absolutely. So you got some snow last night? We got four inches of snow. It was unbelievable. All the kids were building snowmen and everything else. It was uh, it was an odd sight. Last time we had snow was 2004. So That's a blizzard in Texas for you. That's a blizzard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking time and and, uh, you know, over the years, I was so fortunate to spend so many years with Hank Johnson, who I know you're good friends with and, and talk together with. And I learned so much from Hank. And one of the things Hank always pushed me with was to spend as much time talking to and watching other great teachers as you can. And, you know, I've tried, I've tried to do that as much as I can. I think it gets harder the busy you get, but I still try. And I wanted to sit down with you because, and I don't, don't take this as I think you're old, but you've been out there teaching great players for a long time. No, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not old school. I'm not old school, but I'm old. But, you know, how has your teaching philosophy changed? I know obviously, in, you know, you, you did a lot of golf machine stuff. I know of, watched you at things and talked to you before and how has your teaching philosophy changed and how have you managed to stay so current with all the stuff that, that is going on out there with technology? I was just kind of curious how to pick your brain and how has it changed and morphed into what it is now? Well, you know, actually my generation uh, sort of pioneered the uh, scientific movement. In 1980, I was working for Golf Digest Schools and we were hired to Establish a golf academy in Austin. That's how I got to Austin. And uh, so I could do anything I wanted. So one of the things I wanted to do was to develop an advisory board that included uh, all of the different disciplines in golf. And so we had, this is 1980, so we had an advisory board that had, uh, had a biomechanist. We had a strength and fitness guy. We had a psychologist. And we also had Dave Pels for short game. And uh, so we had Dave Pels for short game, Al Vermeil, the strength coach for the 49ers at the time and for the Chicago Bulls later, and one of the true legends in, in fitness. And then we had Dick Coop in psychology mm-hmm. and Ralph Mann in biomechanics. And so, you know, that's why I said that was 40 years ago. Wow, it's 40 years. That makes that's- me even feel old. <laughs> So, so anyway, so I've always had a big interest in that. So I've always okay. uh, tried to stay current with what's going on, and so we started with that. And then, uh, you know, I worked for the Golf Digest School, so I was lucky to work with Hank Johnson and Bob Toskey and Jim Flick and Davis Love and John Jacobs and, you know, all of the great teachers back in that era. And then living in Austin, got to spend a lot of time with Harvey Pinnock. And then Tom Ness and I got involved with the golfing machine in the 80s and uh, with uh, Ben Doyle and Mac O'Grady. So I've got it going from all different directions. And, and uh, so we, we, I, I was the first guy to use a launch monitor for teaching. Yeah, okay. it, it was an old Achiever launch monitor, and it was all done with algorithms and everything like that. 
And it, some of the guys had bought it for club fitting, but I, we started using it for teaching. We didn't have any idea about what, it, what the numbers meant. You know, we'd say, well, you know, Tom Kite launches his six iron at 16 degrees, so that must be pretty good. <laughs> you're, you're launching it at 24, so it can't be good. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And so the, I've just stayed up with the up with the times, but probably the biggest change in my instruction it was golf digest. We were all a lot about hands and wrists and arms and so forth, and the little muscles uh, controlling the swing. And then when I went and watched Ben Hogan practice, I noticed that he didn't do that. Okay. And so uh, I said, well, there's more to it than I thought there was. Phil Rogers and I were teaching together, and we were teaching low to high, inside out. Flip your wrist to hook the ball off the tee. And uh, like I said, I saw Hogan didn't do that, so that led me to look to more. And, and the golfing machine was answered a lot of my questions, so I did that. And so probably by 1996, I was pretty set with what I was doing. And more big muscle control of the swing instead of small muscle control of the swing. And, and as more and more technology has come out, it's really just confirmed that. You know, if you look at the 3D stuff, you see the sequence of movement uh, from the ground up. You see, when you see TrackMan, TrackMan loves lag, TrackMan loves the path, the swing direction being to the left, the more lag you have, all that sort of thing. So a lot of the stuff has been confirmed, and I haven't really changed a lot of what I teach since probably the mid-90s. And I would say, you know, the foundation of everything that I teach is, you know, I got from my years with Hank. You know, it, for me coming and learning to teach, it was such a great foundation. And as I've gone along and done stuff on my own, I, you know, the swing catalysts, the pressure plates, and all those things, and the the launch monitors really didn't change much of it. It kind of helped me understand some of the things that he explained to me better, really. You know, it wasn't like any of it was new, you know, which I think was a help for me. And it makes sense. You know, you and I were both successful teachers, and so we must have been doing something right. Maybe. I might maybe. <laughs> now, what made you decide to go down the down the road of the golf machine? I mean, was it just – I mean, how did that start? I've just I never really heard that story. Just kind of curious how you got going to do that with Ness. Well, it's a funny story. Tom Ness and I were working for Golf Digest, and we did uh, a golf school out at Carmel Valley Country Club where Ben Doyle taught. And so we're watching Ben's teaching on the other edge of the range from where we are. We're watching his students, and they just look so good swinging the golf ball. <laughs> we said, wow, and every one of them look good, you know. So we said, well, let's go over there and, you know, and ask him if we can watch. And so we go over there, and he says, well, what are the three imperatives? And we didn't know what the heck he was talking about. And he says, well, when you know, you can come watch me teach. And so uh, <laughs> we found out that was the golfing machine. And so he was, he was, uh, and we we started reading it and couldn't understand it or anything like that. And so we went to Ben and he was, he was real nice to us. And he sort of guided us along uh, with that. And like I said, it gave me a real easy framework from which to teach and gave me Lots of variables and options that I could use to help people uh, in lots of different ways. So it was a, it was a big part of my life, and uh, through that I met Mac O'Grady, and it, he helped me understand some other things 
that all sort of generated my teaching model, if you will, probably by the Ben Nettys. It seems to me that the golf machine nowadays, and I don't know if it's just like social media and TV and, and people and stuff, but like it seems like it gets a bad rap that like people that say they, and maybe that's not an accurate perception, but it seems like that people that talk about people, you know, almost like people don't like to admit that they still use so much of that stuff. But yet, uh, you know, all of the stuff that was my foundation uh, from Hank and from other people I was around and bouncing things off of you and spending time with Ness all, all came from that from that foundation. Well, you know, it's it's all has been relabeled is what's happened. You know, you you'll hear yes. you'll hear guys say, Okay, so like I said, when Phil Rogers and I were teaching, we were talking about swinging inside out and releasing our hands to hit a high hook off a off a high tee. Mm-hmm. So nowadays you would say, okay, you want to shallow the club on the downswing and use gamma torque to square the club face, you know. So <laughs> you, you're, saying, you're saying the same thing. <laughs> you look at the things on gears, and you'll say they'll say, "Oh, well, there's no such thing as a swing plane." And you'll look at this this track on gears, and I mean, it doesn't waver. You know, it, right, right, coming down, it's the same thing. So, I think a lot of it is, you know, has just been relabeled into into different things, and and uh, there are you know, a lot of interesting things going on. Talking about the kinetics of the golf swing versus mm-hmm. the kinematics is interesting but not I haven't found it change anything with what I'm doing and what from what I understand. And it's a lot more complex, I think, uh terminology and so forth than what I've used. That's <laughs> when you talk about a golf machine guy, that's a that's saying a mouthful there, but and then I, I, I think, you know, that there's uh, some things that are being taught that are just very, very good for average players, bad for good players, or vice versa. And I think yeah, that's where you, where you get into real squabbles, you know, with guys. Right. No, no question. You know, and I've always wondered or thought out loud to myself that, you know, in some of the measuring of some of the things that's happening. And I kind of actually asked you this one, your opinion. And, you know, I know that certain things like, for example, lag. I know that the when they measure that stuff on gears, Chuck, that the club is trying to, you know, it is everything is trying to straighten out. But like when you're talking, whenever I'm talking to a good player, like for example, uh, you know, a tour player. I mean, I, I don't know that very many of them are trying to do some of the things that are happening. And I'm wondering if there's a real difference between what's happening and what a player, especially a tour player, is trying to do. If that statement makes sense, you know. It, I mean, sometimes I want that, – that's kind of my question. Well, I think, you know, you get involved with, let's say you're talking about a Justin Thomas golf swing. Okay. Okay, so he's he's very wide on the downswing. Mm-hmm. And so he's upright and he drops it. And he's very wide on the, on the downswing. He has to be in order to square that club up. Mm-hmm. Then you'd get somebody like Sergio who drops it so flat that he has to, I mean, you're gonna, you've got to balance out the shallows and steep. So he, Sergio shallows his plane, so he's got to be steep with his lag. And neither one of those guys, as far as I know, tried to do either one of those. They just hit shots from where they were coming from. 
and found out that that's what happened. And I think that I think that when if you talk about coming, uh, Ness and I did this one time. We we got a we built a plane board and uh, attached a flail to the plane board, which where you could turn it from behind the plane board. You had this uh, crank, you could turn this flail on this plane board, and so then we found it. And so once the the lead lever, we'll call it like the the lead arm on a player gets below horizontal coming down, the club's uncocking. I mean, the second lever is uncocking. You can't keep it right from uncocking. So you don't have to. You don't have to make it uncock. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? You yeah. can't keep it from uncocking. Yeah. Well, we're cranking on that lead lever as hard as we can, and we can't keep it. We can't keep it back. And so I think, you know, like the big alpha wars, whether it's being <laughs> uncocked or whether it's being pulled into normal conditions, you know, is, okay, I understand that, but really, what difference does it make? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If yeah. Because it's a, you can't measure it, and it's all what a player feels or what he thinks. It just has to happen. Right. I mean, if you don't uncock the club, if you just drug it through infinity down the line, you'd never hit the ball. <laughs> is, is, is that what you're kind of referring to when you talk about, like, teaching some things that good players have happen, people that aren't good players? Because I remember one time, you'll find this funny, I, I was asking Ness, this was years back, and he said, I mean, all the people I see are already good at throwing it away. That's why they suck. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I, I mean that. If, if uh, <laughs> people we talk about, you know, handle draggers being a bad thing, and I I don't teach dragging down the target line. I teach dragging up the plane. You know, right. and that as the handle goes around the corner, the club releases pretty hard and fast. In fact, faster than if I could throw it as hard as I wanted. And I couldn't throw it as fast. But right. I think the things I, I would say like. You know, I read some things now where you say, okay, what you want to do in transition is to shallow the club and then bow your wrist so that the club face is square. Well, what happens when you bow that wrist that early, the club face is shut. It's looking at the ground. Mm -hmm. And the only way you can make that ball go straight and get in the air is to lay the face back. And so I've never seen a good player lay the face back and control his distance. Yeah. If you look at the you look at pictures of uh, Hogan and Sneed and Mo Norman and guys, they as they started down, the face of the club would be ninety degrees open to the plane coming down. Okay. Until the lead arm got below, until you got past P five, the lead arm got below horizontal. Then the face would start to close, and they would cover trust the ball, and that loft would be a constant, you know, so mm-hmm. that so you could control the trajectory, therefore controlling the distance. Whereas when it's facing the ground early, you have to make it look at the sky early. And mm-hmm. as now the loft's changing all over the place there, and so you got no chance at all of controlling distance. But for a, a guy that slices the ball, dropping it inside and Closing the face is a good thing because right. it's going to teach him how to hook the ball, which is a really good thing. 
So I think mm-hmm. that, I think that's where you get, you know, like if somebody asked me, said, do you, do you like to see the club shallowed on the downswing and the left wrist flexing the face closed, I would go, what kind of player are you talking about? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's where the arguments come in, is that it's good for one one type of player, but not good for another type of player. Definitely not good for a good player. So you, you've obviously been around and coached so many great players. Talk about a few of them. Tell, I mean, what are some of the – and I find that the more I'm around really good players, great players, I mean, I think I learn more each time I go out from them just watching them, and, and not just about golf swing but how to play than I do anything. What are some of the nuggets over the years you've picked up, some of the interesting things that you've learned from some of the great players you've had the opportunity to spend time around? Yeah, I mean, you learn you learn everything about playing golf from those guys. I mean, I did. Uh, mm-hmm. I know Tom Kite's taught me a lot more than I've taught him, for sure. And, uh, and not just him, but all of the players with whom I've worked. You know, I've had the opportunity. Corey Pavin came to work with me in 1995, and it was in January 1995, and he said, I said, how can I help you? You're a great player. He'd won 20-plus times, I think, already. And he says, well, I want to win a major, and your guys have won some majors. And uh, I said, yeah, but you've won 20-plus times. You know how to win tournaments. He says, yeah, I know, but he says, one thing I can't do is I can't hit a high draw when I want to. And I said, hey, I feel like I need to have that shot. I need to be able to hit it high and to draw the ball when I want to. I don't necessarily want to play that way, but I want to have that shot. And so I said, well, that's pretty easy. I said, just strengthen your grip because he had a mega weak grip. Right. And uh, he said, no, I'm not strengthening my grip. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I've tried that before and that didn't work. (laughs) So... I go, okay, so we want a high draw with a real weak slice grip. And uh, so we worked a lot on, you know, closed stance drills, getting the club mega, getting hands mega deep so he wasn't laid off, getting letting the club pass him, you know, stuff like that to where he could hit a high draw. And, did, that, uh, did that stuff ever, when you're working with a player like that, did it ever – leak into the other stuff that he was already good at in his full swing, hitting his cut? I'm just curious. You know, like, did, did or did you worry about that? I didn't if he didn't. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, he didn't. You know, he had full, total confidence in his game. I mean, at the time, we, we worked for a year and a half, and he won five times, including the U.S. Open, you know. So he was – he wasn't having any problem controlling his ball. And, and uh, a great story about him at Shinnecock when he won the U.S. Open there. He had a one-shot lead on Greg Norman going into the 18th hole, and mm-hmm. Norman was playing the 17th hole. This was the last day. And he, I, I could always tell, I was up in Canada doing a golf school, but I, we were watching TV. And I could always tell what kind of shot Corey was going to try to play by his practice. So I'm watching him make practice swings, and they're hooked practice swings. And that 18th hole of Shinnecock's a hooked two shot, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a long dog leg left uphill par four, so you need some distance. And uh, he had his hook about 25 yards longer than he hit his fade. And he looks over his shoulder. Then I see him change and start making a slice practice. 
and he hits this fade out there. Now he can't reach the green unless he hooks his next shot. Hits this hook and forward that landed short of the green and then rolled up almost won the hole to win the golf tournament. So I talked to him that night and said, I noticed you were gonna you were gonna hook that tee shot and uh then you changed your mind and, and hit a cut shot there. I said, What what happened? He says, Well, I knew I had a one shot lead on Norman and I looked over my shoulder and I saw he was in the bunker on seventeen. He said, So I knew I could get that fade in the fairway. I wasn't real positive about that hook. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I hit that fade. Then I got out there. I go, oh my god! Now, now what have I done? I got, I've got to hit a hook, or I can't get, can't reach the green. And uh, <laughs> so it was, it was a fun story with it, for sure. But, uh, but you know, things like that. You know, where, you know, he needed a shot in his arsenal in order to reach his goals, and he did it. And then, uh, like with Payne Stewart, I'd never worked on his golf. Really? That's not true. I mean, our deal was his dad had told him never to change his swing, and so we never really worked on his swing, but I could recognize his good swing, and if he was not swinging well, I could get him back onto his good swing, and it was almost always just by hitting shots. So if he was out in front of it or whatever, hit blocks or whatever, we just have high hook contest. Or if he was if he was hanging back and overhooking the ball or hitting it too high, then we would have low shot under the tree contest, you know, and stuff like that until this one got neutralized. And then uh, Tom Kite, he wanted to have the most mechanically perfect golf swing anybody ever had, and so it was a totally different way of doing it. And so we we had a lot of fun working with that and studying new things and and uh getting deep into the biomechanics of it and so on and so forth and so that was good and then of course jason duffner working with him he was and believe it or not when we started working he was upright and shut <laughs> and so he was upright and shut and he never shallowed and so he would stay on top of the ball and then when he came down because he was shut he had to lay the face back so he could neither hit it long nor straight or the right distance. <laughs> That's not a good combo for professional golf. <laughs> not a good combo. So, so I wanted him to get the face more open so that he could cover the ball, control the distance, and as he worked the face more open with rotation, it got flatter. And since he never shallowed, once he got flatter, he was on the plane that he needed to come down on. So it, it fixed a whole bunch of stuff by by just uh, working on that one one particular thing. And that's what I found working with good players is that you don't have to reinvent them. Right. You know, I work with Andrew Landry, and he's got a mega strong grip, and you just have to work around stuff like that. So you have to work around the short game. You know, you know, he has to make adjustments in the short game, has to make adjustments and not play and shut to open and so forth. So I've had to learn a lot of different fixes for – or individual golf swings, that's for sure. I always think that, you know, one of the signs of somebody that's a really good teacher is when you look at all their students and you can't, like, you almost can't tell that they work with the, the teacher, you know, because they all swing different, you know. Um, yeah. And, that, and that's certainly the case with all of the folks that you've worked with. When a young professional comes to you now, a young player, I mean, where do you start with a player? What are some of the things you ask or some of the places, you know, some of the things you like to look at and kind of, poke around with them when you get started? Well, you know, mostly 
what I found, I found that you go through sort of a style difference. When you're in high school, I think it's really important to hook the ball. Okay. And so I, I teach every junior to hook the ball. I think it's, it's critical that they learn to do that because it teaches them to do things naturally that they need to have uh, to be a good player. So they, if they're hooking it, they naturally swing more in, in to out. They naturally lag the club more, trying not to hook it so much. Consequently, their angle of attack gets shallow with the long clubs, which is what they need for long clubs, and they have enough distance to compete. And what I find is once they get to college, though, they've got to get rid of the hook. Uh, not necessarily get rid of it, but they've got to get rid of the curve. And so all throughout college, then I work a lot on getting the club to swing back to the inside after impact and uh, to swing left to try and reduce the curve. And I, I, I feel real strongly about that as well. So I don't let many, I don't let many college players swing much into out. And I feel real strongly about that as well. You can hit good shots with a with a swooping hook, but you're gonna get in trouble with it two or three times around. You just can't afford that. Right. And so I, I do that. So when I get to a young pro, a mini tour player that comes to me. It's just wherever they are. Like most of them are, if they're many tour players and not been successful, they're too in to out almost always. Right. And so I, I try to get the club to go back inside to the left and take some of the curve out, help them work on the, a lot on their distance wedge play, you know, which a lot of them cannot, are not very successful at doing if they're not being successful on the mini tours. Interesting. No, I agree with that. And something I had never thought of, but I like the, you know, I teach a lot of juniors. I, I love teaching junior golf and, uh, but had never thought about in terms of teaching all of the, the hit draws. Uh, I, I find that interesting. I mean, and, and I agree a hundred percent. I just never had thought of it in those terms, you know, an interesting perspective. Yeah. I feel like it's a requirement almost, you know, to go through hook. There's some pictures of Nicholas when he was a 15 year old where he's, Club face is upside down at the top. You know, you know he was getting hooked back when he was 15 years old, and that sort of cemented it for me. I go, oh yeah, he was on the line. Yeah, they didn't cut it. No, he didn't cut it. He hooked it too when he was. So, feel like that that's a natural way, natural progression, and an easy way to play good golf because you don't have to think about it. If you're fighting a hook, you're going to do certain things. If you're fighting a slice, you'll you'll do other things. What about a tour player, you know, somebody that's been out there, you know, has a card or kept a card but struggling? Do you start a different place with them, or where where do you go with that? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's pretty easy to figure out where they're weak. So I guess a a year and a half ago, Bo Hostler came to me to ask how to hit distance wedges. It, it, his first year on tour, he played great. He won two and a half million. And then his second year, he took some lessons from somebody else, didn't do very well, and he basically lost his card. Mm-hmm. Uh, got it back in the four-tournament four uh, coronary deal. And But he, Bo liked to hook the ball. He liked to swing inside out and hook the ball. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I said, Bo, I... So you got 120 mile an hour clubhead speed. You don't you don't want to hook the ball. Trust me, you don't want to hook. But you want to fade the ball. And he says, "Well, I just don't see a I just don't see a fade." I said, "But I'm 
I, I'm just telling you, I said, I can't, I can't in good conscience t- go in there and work with you on, you know, hitting big swings five or six end out and love, love the shot, which you can hit a really good looking shot five or six end out. But to me, it's just a, it's a big blaring sign that says trouble is around the corner. Mm-hmm. And he would miss, it would always be too far to the left. And so we worked for, uh, we worked on wedges. And I said, okay, here's the deal. I like hooking wedges. I said, I, if, if you want to, when you hit wedges, if you want to, you want to hook them, I said, I like that. I said, you can mm-hmm. slide them down that way and control the distance. He did great. So he played great at Bermuda. He had 23 birdies in the Eagle, which is a wedge course. And he played great at Greenbrier, which is a wedge course. So he was, he was doing pretty well, but he, he kept getting into trouble throughout the year. So he'd have a big number of birdies, a big number of bogeys. So I told him, I said, at the end of the year, I said, look, Bo, I said, I I can't do this. But I said, I'm, I want you to go see Dana Dawquist because Dana, he likes to see that club shallow and likes it going in to out. And I said, you and he, and so he knows better about how to make that work on tour than I do. And so I want you to go over to work with him and you guys, you know, let him teach you how to use that draw to, to win on the, win on the tour. Because Bo's a thoroughbred. I mean, yeah, for sure. is a thoroughbred. And uh, I just, I had a hard time just convincing myself. I mean, I could get him to do it. I could get him to make his swing look like he did in college and all that sort of stuff. But it just always nagged at me and I just didn't believe in it. And uh, so... That's an example I think you probably don't hear very often. No, I love that. How often does that happen to you? How many times have you told a player, you know, a real good player, they're like, hey, maybe what I'm telling or what I think or believe, you know, it might not be right for you. You need to go to so-and-so or do something different. Yeah, I've done that several times. I've had I've done that with uh, some. I've got a college kid that's going to Auburn. I mean, as, uh, he's a high school kid going to Auburn. And uh, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, he's a superstar. This kid's probably the most talented kid that I've ever worked with. He's not Robbie Shelton, but he's he's a <laughs> he's a phenomenal talent kid, the Vietnamese kid. And uh, you know he's got 120 mile an hour and this that and the other. But he likes that end out. So I just I told him you need to go see somebody else if you want to do that because I just don't think it'll work. You know. That's great advice though. You know, I mean, I, that's the one thing I mean, you stick to what you believe in and what, you know, and I think that, uh, I mean, I've been guilty of it at times. Like, it's easy to just let, you know, because you want to teach somebody good, get going down a road that isn't what you're good at or isn't what you believe in. And it probably doesn't work very well for either one of you down yeah. the road. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like I said, with Bo, I wanted because I, I like the kid a lot. He's really a great kid. He's not a kid, great man, and he's uh, got a phenomenal amount of talent and everything like that. But I just, uh, we just didn't agree. You know, it was, he wanted to go one way, and I wanted, I, I would, I could coach him. I could get him to do it. You know, I'd watch him and say, okay, let's go out and around and, you know, then try to swing out on it. You know, right. I just grip my teeth. You know, and he, <laughs> you know, he loved it. <laughs> but anyway, Chuck, this has been awesome. It's, in case you didn't know, it's probably more of the questions for me than anybody listening. But I appreciate, I always appreciate you taking the time. 
know you've been busy and you have a lot of stuff going on, but I appreciate you taking the time to sit in with me. And always, as always, anytime I've asked to share a video, your your input, I appreciate it. And hopefully we'll get a chance when things get back to normal and everybody can travel again to sit down and sit and have a drink at a bar. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Tour Coach with Tony Ruggiero. If you enjoyed this, make sure to hit subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are listening to this podcast. You can stay up to date because we have weekly episodes coming your way with fascinating people in the world of golf instruction at the highest level. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned. If you want to learn more about Tony, head over to dosweepersgolf.com to get all the details on what he's up to. Maybe you want to see him, grab a lesson, or go to one of his camps, pick up his book, Lessons from the Legends. You can do that there. If you want to see Tony in action with some videos and other content, head over to golfsciencelab.com slash Tony to get more info there. This episode was powered by the Golf Science Lab and was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Published Productions. We go into year two of the tour coach it wouldn't be possible without the support of all our sponsors and i've had some great ones and one of the things that i'm most proud of in my career and in my business is the fact that all of my relationships here and all these sponsorships have been long time long withstanding relationships haven't jumped from sponsor to sponsor and manufacturer to manufacturer and i've always prided ourselves in special relationships and when people work together support each other And we've all put out great products for the benefits of everybody else. So I want to give a special thanks to these folks that have been with me for such a long time. And that would be the folks at Shrixon, Cleveland Golf, and Zexio. Couldn't ask for a better manufacturer to be aligned with. And not only do they put out great product and great support, but they're first-class people and they believe in what we're doing here on the Tour Coach and with the Dew Sweepers and also Vineyard Vines. Ian, Shep, TJ, and all the folks at Vineyard Vines Hard to keep me looking good, but they do a fantastic job. And they're like family. They support everything on the Dew Sweepers. And we're so proud to be affiliated with and support the folks at Vineyard Vines. So if you're out there, you're listening to the Tour Coach, please support our sponsors, Strixon Cleveland Golf Zexio, as well as Vineyard Vines. And keep listening and keep enjoying hanging out with us here on the Tour Coach.